Hi, everybody. Thank you for listening to another one of our podcasts. I hope you make it to the end this time. <laughs> um, the, uh, you'll notice our last podcast was we had a guest appearance of a door, which uh, banged throughout. <laughs> uh, uh, we don't, that door has now been, uh, now been closed, so we won't be troubled by that again. But we are actually delighted to welcome back Dina Battle, um, who um, gave us a really important patient perspective on uh, about a week and a half ago. We wanted to talk about a couple of things. Number one, what's happened in the last week and a half from a US and a European perspective. And number two is Dina, uh, you've performed a survey which we wanted to talk about. Um, Dina, do you want to introduce yourself and far away with some of the results of your survey? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks to both of you for having me back on um, and to talk about uh, how patients feel about COVID-19 and their kidney cancer treatment. Um, you know, we had over 500 patients participate in this in a very short period of time, which shows um, we're grateful to everyone for taking part in that. We had people from all over the world, um, I think 16 different countries, a lot of people from the U.S. We had 48 different states that were represented. So we feel like this was a, a pretty good view of patients and um, how they feel about their disease. Um, we wanted to ask questions sort of asking them about how they feel about their risk of COVID-19, but then also about, um, you know, how they feel about getting treatment for their cancer right now. And I think... I was actually very somewhat surprised by the results. I don't always know when we do a survey like this what the answers are going to be. Um, but we found really high rates of anxiety, both um, about acquiring COVID-19, but also about their cancer progressing. In fact, if we asked them to rank what they were most concerned about, um, patients with metastatic disease actually expressed the same level of anxiety. Uh, they ranked it as a seven, which is high on the distress scale. They ranked equally. They're concerned about their cancer progressing and about acquiring the disease. So, Brian, just does that, is that justified? Is that right? Right. Metastatic. Disease. Yeah. It's, it's just about uh, metastatic disease. Right. Um, no. When when I saw this, Dina, you had sent it to us beforehand. I was somewhat stunned at that. You know. You know. Obviously, their cancer is an underlying chronic condition with sort of that continuous risk of progression. I would think that would weigh on their minds more. But clearly, the acute issue of infection sort of has risen up out of nowhere because <clears throat> I'm guessing these folks didn't worry about infection before really to any, on any grand scale. So I, I thought that was surprising. My take on it is, is mixed. So I think that we know that cancer patients on treatment, we don't know, we think cancer pa patients on treatment are at higher risk. The detail of whether immune therapy increases or decreases your risk is controversial. And we did a podcast on that. Um, clearly, um, the cytokine storm, the increased immune activation associated in rare individuals as a side effect of immune therapy also appears to occur with um, the, the acute phase of, sorry, the accelerated phase of COVID-19. And therefore, I can see if I was on immune therapy, I can see myself being very anxious around that. Um, I also would need to be coming to hospital on a regular basis, and I can see that causing a lot of anxiety. Um, and okay. I can see the mortality, you know, people read, talk about mortality being high, and people also in Europe talk about, you know, are we ventilating cancer patients, metastatic cancer patients? And in some countries, I think we're not doing that. 
So actually, I see that anxiety and I don't think it's misplaced. Um, hey, Dina, can I ask you a question? So do you think this concern of cancer progressing, is it, and I know we're going to talk about skipping treatment and infusions. For this question, though, was it specific to now, meaning they're more concerned about cancer progressing be- because of COVID and maybe not being able to get treatment? Or is that sort of their their baseline risk of worry about cancer progressing? Can you tell? So we, I can't know for sure. Uh, we asked them in two separate questions. Um, you know, we didn't ask it as an either or. We asked them, how nervous are you about your cancer progressing? We asked, and then we asked a separate question, okay. how a- anxious are you about yeah, acquiring so COVID-19? But they're separate so, questions, Brian. And I think yeah. that the, the way I interpret that is people are equally anxious around this current pandemic as they are about their underlying cancer getting worse. Yeah, for and sure. I think that my feeling on this, for what it's worth, is that each country will go through a period of, or each area will go through a period of healthcare challenge. And that's happening in London at the moment and will probably continue for the next three or four weeks. I think after that period, things will settle. And as things settle, because mainly driven by isolation, as things settle, the healthcare systems will recover. And I think we will be a lot better prepared if there was a second or when there is a second or third wave of this. So I think this is the most difficult time there is so much uncertainty. Yeah. I think that anxiety is justified. But I suspect come May, June, July, I think the those numbers will flip around when we get better at and we are going to get better at this. Great. Do you know what else? Uh, what, what's the next result? So, that, you know, that was asking the question of how anxious they are. And then we asked them to, to weigh just in their own view whether they think they, whether they believe they're at higher risk for COVID-19. 70% of patients believe that they are at higher risk. Um, and yeah. I, I thought that was a very high number. Um, I mean, one thing that's interesting th- is only 27% of patients had actually asked had reached out to their doctor or been told by their doctor that they were at high risk. So this is their self-assessment. Yeah. Or what they hear in the news and, and, you know, social media and the like. But I mean, I I think we do think that patients with advanced cancer, even irrespective of treatment are are probably at higher risk now, how much higher and and what to do about it are the obvious questions, but. Brian, I'm going to interrupt you. I want you to ask a different question. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I want you to say, Let's start with a T2 cancer patient who had their cancer removed three months ago. Um, Let's talk about, are they at higher risk? Let's say they're 65 years old, average age. And then let's talk about a second patient who's a patient who's on VEGF-targeted therapy after six months, who's got metastatic disease. Are they at higher risk? Because there are a lot of patients who have had a kidney removed at some point in the last couple of years. Yeah. A lot of patients and what's and we need to talk about that group because that if that group is super anxious right now um actually you know you might say if you had a t2 operation five years ago the risk of covid probably is greater than the risk of the cancer coming right back. Sure, yeah, so right. We, let's just talk about that group of patients yeah so i guess i would say that i'm you know, this is not necessarily my expertise, but I'm not aware of literature around risk of viral infections, you know, after a nephrectomy. I don't even know if that exists. But I would think if you're three months or more out from, you know, 
what I would call a relatively straightforward operation and you recovered, et cetera, and don't have other chronic health conditions, I, d- I doubt you're at much higher risk than the general population. Right. I think it's totally different than obviously somebody on VEGF therapy or IO or whatever has active metastatic disease requiring therapy, presumably. So I think those patients are at higher risk. Again, I don't know how to quantify that. Um, again, the, the risk of bad things happening in the general population is relatively low. It's not low enough, but relatively low, but I think, but higher in the, in that second population you mentioned. Brian, can I just ask you to sure. sort of talk about that a little bit with the, the VEGF um, therapy, because this is a question that we get over and over again, and we still got it again when we reached out to patients this week. Um, is their risk higher because they are on VEGF therapy? And just to clarify that for patients that would be Sutin or um, Cabo or, you know, a targeted right. treatment. A pill, basically, um, yeah. Yeah. Is, is it because of their treatment or is it because of their underlying metastatic disease? Yeah, I mean, the answer is we don't really know. But my guess is it's because of their underlying disease. <clears throat> I don't know that anything about VEGF therapy makes you more susceptible to viral infections. I mean, Tom and I have both given a truckload of those drugs, and I've never thought that those patients had more seasonal influenza, et cetera. And in fact, when we did our podcast with um, Doug Johnson from my institution, we have data that he looked at like his database of something like 400 melanoma patients, and they didn't have an increased incidence of, of seasonal influenza. And so, and those patients were on IO, of course. So there's not great data, but I don't know that we have data that the therapy, and I'm putting sort of bread and butter chemo aside, which we don't use in RCC, that the therapies we give for RCC, I'm not aware of any data that they increase risk of infection. We're, we just started a national database to look at it, um, but it'll be you know weeks to months before that data so comes out. So just to summarize, Brian, that local disease after an operation, um, no increased risk of getting the infection and currently no evidence of increased mortality associated with having the infection. Correct. Metastatic disease, um, theoretical risk of getting the infection, perhaps because you've got a cancer or perhaps because you're on therapy, but no proof that there's increased risk of getting the infection. But there is some evidence that cancer patients on treatment with metastatic disease have a higher mortality. Than yeah, the I, think, I think everything you said is true. Yeah. Okay. But it's, again, not based on large data sets. There's small, small data sets out of Asia and, and Italy, I think, emerging and stuff. So, and I'm not, certainly not aware of any RCC data sets yet. I think what will be most helpful for patients, though, is to hear that it's somewhat reassuring for them to know that their treatment itself is not that we know of associated with an increased causing an increased risk for them. I think that will be helpful. Yes. So, Dina, talk about some of the numbers about patients wanting to skip infusions or therapy or or not wanting to, because that's relevant to what you just said. Yeah, absolutely. So when we asked patients how they felt, um, so patients who are on infusion therapy or maybe who are on immunotherapy, um, 50% of patients were unwilling to skip their next infusion treatment. And only 3% of patients indicated that they were very willing to skip their next infusion. Mm. So while a lot of patients were somewhat uncertain, wanted to hear from their doctor, there, there seems to be a trend of patients who really don't they want to keep their infusions going? Brian, can I take that question? 
Please. So, Dina, there are two or three things. The first thing is that anything that Brian and I say from here needs to be with the caveat that the first port of call is the conversation with the healthcare professionals looking after the patients. Absolutely. Because every patient is different and every circumstance is different, but also every hospital's current situation with the COVID pandemic is different. So what's going on in um, Arizona is going to be very different from what's going on in London right now. Um, And as it currently stands in London, the risk associated with infection and because we've been told we shouldn't be leaving our houses and because the risk in this group is high and the half-life of the immune therapy drugs is long and because we are going to reach our peak over the next two or three weeks, getting the infection today or tomorrow and becoming ill in three weeks' time as a cancer patient is pretty unappealing. And therefore, I would put it to my patients that if you had an infusion in the last week or two, you're probably better off having your next infusion in four or five weeks time when the storm has passed. Yeah, I totally agree. I think another way to look at it is, you know, is there a reason not to skip the next infusion? <laughs> and as you say, everybody's different. And somebody who's only gotten, say, two induction doses of Ipinevo is different than somebody who's been on for a year on maintenance Nevo, right? Those are totally different patients. So disease status and response and tolerance, all that plays in. But even before all this, we were looking at immune-based therapies and asking ourselves, can we stop at some point? Can we space out infusions? You know, can we hold therapy, et cetera, et cetera? And we're designing trials to answer that. It's, it's as yet unanswered. But now I think it really reinforces that strategy of giving as little therapy as possible. And, and the good news about immune therapy is, as you know, you can get durable responses, even with a minimal amount of therapy. So if I were a patient, I'd ask myself, if I had an infusion in a week, I'd ask myself and my doctor, do I, do I really need that? And what's the real harm of me waiting a month for that next infusion? My personal opinion is that it's pretty low. For most patients, again, individualized, but for most patients, it's pretty low to, to delay an infusion. And, you know, I, I absolutely, I think what we, I think what it would be so helpful for providers to hear is just for them to know that patients are anxious about this. So if there is a reason that you would, you're recommending that they miss an infusion or skip a treatment that you have a conversation with that patient and make it clear to them that this is a pause that we're going to reevaluate sort of that they're not being left hanging out there. I think that's a big concern. I will say that, you know, having Um, done the delayed start of therapy and intermittent trials, you know, over the last years, just there for a lot of patients, just reassurance from, from me and my, you know, colleagues that, you know, it's okay. (laughs) You know, we're not, it's not a crazy decision and it's perfectly fine. And and saying, you know what, I've done this many times and it's fine. goes a really long way, you Mm -hmm. know, so they're, they're looking for that reassurance and it really can only be provided, you know, from their caregiver. Absolutely. And we do have, you know, unfortunately this is going to happen in every health system, but we do have patients who are getting sort of an automated message, whether it's an email or something from a phone call saying your infusions have been canceled indefinitely. And um, so, you know, we're just encouraging providers to sort of check up on that and make sure that if a patient got something like that, that they get a personal call or reach out to, there to reassure them. There won't be them. a healthcare system 
that won't be picking this up. That's a double negative. But in a modest period of time, within the scope of kidney cancer safety for the vast majority of patients, the cancer systems will be back online. Um, we're expecting a difficult few weeks. And when we have those difficult few weeks, postponing, changing is all reasonable. But we will be, I feel pretty strongly that we're going to be treating cancer patients in a fairly regular way in the not too distant future. I think that, and I think that as the second and third wave comes, we're going to be much, much better at doing this. So I think for me, there is a lot of reassurance for patients that this uncertainty will not last till October, November, December. My feeling is from a Yes, we will have disruption to the economy, I suspect. Um, I suspect infection will be ongoing during that period of time. And I don't think we're going to have a vaccine by, you know, that's widely available by Christmas. That's what I'm being told. But I, but I do think we're going to be treating cancer patients in a much safer and a much more what I describe as pre-COVID way within a month or so. Yeah, I agree. Well, that's that's good to hear. So I'll, um, you know, uh, in, in addition to the infusion therapy, when we just ask patients generally, and this would include patients who are on oral TKIs as well. So 65% of patients said they do not want to pause their systemic therapy. Um, and I think we kind of covered that a little bit, but maybe just if you guys could talk about patients who are on oral therapy, is there any reason where you would want them to pause I mean, or stop? It, it, I sort of go back to the pre-COVID and that if I had a patient on, you know, Axie or something for six to 12 months, all, the, all of those patients took breaks for tolerance and some of them took long breaks, you know, for life events and vacations and stuff. And so we need to treat patients with the least amount of therapy that controls their disease. And so I was a big fan of pausing therapy before all this. And, you know, again, a lot of times it was just that reassurance that if you stop your drug for three days, or maybe in this case longer, in general, nothing bad's going to happen if you're monitored, right? And so it's because those patients on more chronic therapy are obviously doing well with disease control, you know, so it's a little bit different if you're just starting therapy. I think that's a much tougher conversation. But if you're three, six plus months out, I think you have the luxury of holding therapy for most patients. That's my opinion. We're giving patients eight so, weeks of therapy right. to some patients instead of, you know, so we're giving, if we're giving pozofenib, we're giving two cycles. Uh, and we're saying, you know, obviously this is not the first or second cycle. That's more difficult with the transaminitis and other bits and pieces. But, you know, essentially anyone who's been on therapy for more than three or four months, you know, we're saying, listen, the next eight weeks are pretty hard. Here are eight weeks of treatment. Bunker down, lock yourself away. Don't get the infection. See you in a couple of months time. And we'll be on the telephones with them. You know, yeah. I think there's no reason why you shouldn't be going on with targeted therapy. But I do genuinely feel that the advice from the current U European and US governments around isolation is particularly relevant to metastatic cancer patients. Yeah. Brian, I would just say, just to play devil's advocate slightly, you, you made the point you think it's safe as long as they're being monitored. I, I think a lot of patients don't feel like they're being monitored right now because they don't have access to their doctors and their cancer centers. Um, so I, I do think that is adding sure. a little bit to the anxiety. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree. I mean, so. they, they should have access, right? I mean, 
So my patients mm-hmm. can call me, email me, te- you know, electronic message me, blah, blah, blah. We can have virtual visits, but I realize that's not rolled out everywhere, especially in rural areas. You know, some older patients don't have the technology to do telehealth visits, the, the technical savvy, et cetera. Um, and so, so it is, it is right. dependent, but you know, it's always important. Communication is always important, but you know, I think maybe to Tom's point, it's especially important now, you know, that if they're having side effects at home or they're having problems, they need to reach out. Yeah. And that brings us to a next thing. Speaking of monitoring, so 80% of patients still want to have scans for their disease. Um, so it'd be great to hear your thoughts on this, whether patients can safely delay a scan. Uh, Tom, why don't you take that one? I mean, it comes back to what I said before. Discussion with the doctor is really important. We um, There are patients who need CT scans. I saw a chat last week with new bone pain. Um, we saw them in clinic. Um, they were on therapy. We were worried about progression of disease. Um, we did a CT scan on, the, on that day. Um, yes, of course, we should be scanning patients, new patients with metastatic disease. We're starting therapy. Yes, of course, we need to be scanning. In the UK, there are 165,000 cancer deaths every year. We need to keep reminding ourselves that cancer is a serious problem. And COVID is a current 10 out of 10 healthcare economic society priority but when the dust settles we need to make sure we haven't left too many people behind so that's the first thing the second thing is are there patients that need scans on that particular day and again if you've been the actual post post nephrectomy the imaging protocols that we have in place i've looked at the eau guidelines i think currently they're too rigorous I think they're probably too rigorous anyway. I'm not sure that patients, for example, some of the trials were doing CT scans every three months. I don't think patients need that. And I think if you're pushing a routine CT scan, you're feeling fine, you're pushing a routine CT scan um, back two or three months during this difficult period, I think that's entirely reasonable. Yeah, I would say in medicine and in kidney cancer, we do we just do too many scans. <laughs> They've gotten so easy to do. And so, you know, again, ask yourself if even if a patient has has metastatic disease on active therapy, you know, what's the harm of waiting another month for a scan, you know, or another two weeks or whatever. And, you know, maybe there is harm and maybe you need to do it. But at least asking the question probably will allow you to safely delay, I would say, a a majority of patients. So what else do you know where? You know, I think we're coming to uh, to the the, the, we're, we're about 20 minutes, so we might have time for one more question. Or we, uh, or one more comment from you, and then something from you, Brian. And um, the less from me, the better. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll just say the final, the final uh, point I want to make is that forty-six percent of patients indicated not having access to additional services to reduce in-person visits. And I think as as providers, hospital systems, governments are making decisions uh, across large patient populations, it's really important to remember how many people are really don't have access to a doctor or to a hospital. Yeah. And um, those are things that we hope to roll out, but we should really keep those people in mind because we don't want them to feel abandoned during this yeah. process. I think one good that may come of all this is our ability to do telehealth and, and, and give those patients remote access, so to speak, is going to get a lot better. Uh, I hope it gets a lot better. Uh, I hope you know, at least in the U.S., some of our state license restrictions go away, et cetera, and that, you know, in a year from now, 
patients don't have to come in as much, right? Because we can do telehealth, even patients on trials, et cetera. It's just not something we were ever forced to do, um, but now we're being forced to do it. But that, that number also seemed very high to me that almost half the people don't even have access to, to anything to reduce in-person visits, which I assume means telehealth and phone calls and things like that. I'm, I'm a little surprised at that number. Okay. Ryan, we're going to call it. Dina, thank you both very much indeed. Let's hope we get through this. And the, and the number of deaths in Spain reduced today. Um, we're getting, we're getting oh, over good. the bump of this, I hope. And, the, and, and, and I know New York's having a difficult time. Yeah. I think we're going to get better at this. Stay safe. Yeah, everybody. thanks, Dina. Hang thanks to both of you. Stay, yeah, stay thanks, safe. Thanks for the survey. We appreciate your, your time. Take care.